the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating, true stories from around the Old North State. Hello and welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina where we connect historical documents to fascinating true stories from the past. The theme of this first season is Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, where archival documents uncover a crime, a misstep, or something mystifying. We're your hosts, Brandon McCray. And Ellen Brooks. And today we're going to mix things up a little bit. Randon and I have taken over the hosting duties and we're taking a bit of a break from the mystery and the murder and we're diving straight into mayhem, specifically animal mayhem. And with us in the studio today, we have fellow archivists, Debbie Blake. Hi. And Chris Meekins. Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Sure, of course. So we are going to go ahead and start in April 1761. We're in the General Assembly meeting in Wilmington. And this is a story of two Charleses and a cat. So we have Charles Cogdell who was a former member of the Colonial Assembly, and he was present here at this General Assembly meeting as an observer, apparently. And the story was that he threw a cat onto Charles Robinson, who was a member of the House. Now, Cogdell claimed that the cat had leapt onto his shoulder and that he had been really surprised, so he'd thrown her off and that she landed on Robinson. But he didn't do it on purpose. And still, he was reprimanded by the Speaker of the House. Apparently, he was reprimanded for treating the House with contempt and indignity. And then Cogdell was asked to apologize to the House and to Robinson specifically. So that's the story. And Chris, how do we know about this story? Well, the story comes to us from the uh, State House Journal from that time period, April of 1761. So it's the official record of the events in the State House, which is essentially the General Assembly. And what exactly does it say in there? What are some of the interesting pieces of that? Well, let's just frame this and think about it. To understand you know, when this was happening, let's consider that in April 1761, England and France were at war with each other. It's known as the French and Indian War and also known as the Seven Years' War. So the assemblymen have met and they are passing appropriation bills for this war. And the mechanism is they pass the bills and they present them to the governor, His Excellency, for approval or disapproval. So very reminiscent of what we still do today. There's a budget passed and then the governor signs off on it or not. During this very sober moment, approval of war appropriations, you have this. Mr. Charles Cogdell has been guilty of a contempt and indignity of the House by throwing a cat upon Mr. Charles Robinson, one of the members of this House, whilst in the council chamber during the time Mr. Speaker was presenting the bill passed this session to His Excellency the Governor for his assent. So, as we've heard, Cogdell tried to play it off, and he confessed that a cat leaping upon his shoulders from the staircase He, on a surprise, threw her from him, which might fall on Mr. Robinson, but with no design or contempt to any of the members of the House. 
So even though Cogdell, you know, had claimed that he was self a victim of the cat and he was simply throwing the cat off of himself, the bar, which is the authority at the house, did not believe him. And then we have this statement, pursuant to the order, the sergeant at arms brought the said Charles Cogdell to the bar of the house, where he asked pardon of the house and of Mr. Robinson in particular for his said offense. And then he was reprimanded by Mr. Speaker and ordered to be discharged, paying the fees. Again, just think of of the context. We have war appropriations, and here's this cat thrown into the middle of the you know floor, creating what sort of mayhem and the things that we have. It just makes for a fun and interesting scene, and even more so, I think, is the matter of fact way in which it's it's recorded. It's all in the business of the day, <laughs> right? It's the official record, and as humorous as this incident must have been, the official recorder for the General Assembly is just in matter-of-fact language explaining what happened and the consequences of it, you know, and then immediately they pick up other appropriation bills. So if this is the actual action, as you might think it's happening on the floor, the governor is is hearing these bills for appropriations for war, and suddenly this cat is tossed into the middle of the, you know, event, and this guy's fighting a cat off his head, and then the reprimand incident, and then they're right back at the business of the state uh, making appropriations. So it's just hilarious. <laughs> so we do know about this because of the House Journal. Um, we didn't find any mention of it in any newspapers or anything else. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that might be? Sure. In North Carolina at that time, there were only three newspapers in print. James Davis was actually responsible for two of those. And one was uh, the North Carolina Gazette, which would have been probably the newspaper it would have been in in August of 1751 is when that newspaper began. And it was based in Newburn, but it would have reported on the government and things that were happening. However, as is sadly the case sometimes, although we have papers from 1761, we don't have extant issues that date around that. So papers were typically weekly at that time. We would have expected a week or two afterwards to have seen something of this hilarious story in the paper. Um, It's something that hilarious probably would have been picked up in regional papers like the South Carolina paper or or Massachusetts paper. So I still hold out hope uh, that we might find some other mention of this story if we can get access to those records as well, if they're extant. Yeah, so it's completely ridiculous to think they wouldn't have picked it up. Um, This is what's happening in the house. And oh, by the way, there's a cat in the mix. I think they would have picked it up. It's just a shame we don't have issues. Buy your war bond. Oh, and here's a cat story. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, listeners, uh, keep your eye out for a mention of a cat in the house in North Carolina in 17. Where are we? 1761. Yeah, great. Wow. So that wraps up the story about the cat throwing incident. And Randon, you have our next story. What's up next in Animal Mayhem? Well, next we'll go to Charlotte, September 1880, to one of the more troubling occurrences involving an elephant in the circus. So as I understand it, Old Chief was captured in Asia in 1872. 
and then import it to the John Robinson Circus out of Cincinnati, Ohio. So imported, then sold to the circus. When Chief was captured, he was involved in a vicious training routine of reinforcement. So one can speculate that caused him to fight back against his trainers. Well, September 27th, 1880, the John Robinson Circus came into Charlotte and King's trainer, John King, he looked away for a second and Chief happened to escape uh, when that happened. Also, another detail is that Chief was um, in that reinforcement. He was full of uh, hormones at that time. And so I guess he had the extra strength and he smashed John King um, and broke every bone in his body. Um, and so King died the next morning. And so Chief would remain with the circus and continue to cause trouble um, until he was put to death in 1890. Chris Debbie, I don't I hope I didn't leave anything out, but please, um, you know, correct me if I did. But do you want to talk about the documents uh, that we have related to this story? Sure. We don't we don't have a lot of documents related to this story. But the first thing you do anytime you get a story like this is to is to think about what documents might have been created um, that would tell you something about this story. And that's when you go start looking for documents in those places that you have identified as places that there might be something. Right. Um, and that's um, what we did with this story as well. And I would say that that's handy to... Um if you're a researcher, that's what an archivist or reference archivist does. It connects you as a researcher with the documents that you're looking for, and they would be able to advise you on right, record series are available at the local archives, no matter what archives you're at. You may be a very good resource, a researcher your own self, but I would say, you know, have a moment and talk to your reference archivist, and they may be able to think about collections and think about the story that you're um, interested in in a way that you hadn't, and be able to point you at those documents. And so that's what Debbie and I did when we were sitting down looking at what was the first story was the newspaper article was the main story that tells us um, the incident itself and all the things that occurred with both King and Old Chief. Sure. This moment when Chief smashes John King, apparently, you know, he ran away through the streets of Charlotte. And we have documents that talk about the route the chief took. Did you want to talk about that? One thing I would say, Debbie had mentioned, we have a, just a few documents, but it's interesting because they bring to the table lots of different series of records um, that we normally don't get to talk about. So the first one is the map collection, and we have a very extensive map collection, some of which is on NC Maps Online, hosted with UNC. Um, but Again, come to the repository and look in the repository and see the maps. And in this case, the newspaper article told us that Chief crushed King at one point Trade Street and followed the railroad tracks down and then went a couple of blocks over before they captured him. And then the reverse order of that, they sort of completed the circuit and came back to Trade Street where Old Chief had started. Using that and a period map um, of Charlotte, we have been able to recreate that route and highlighted it for you. So if you take a look at our blog post and see those maps, you can see Chief's route through the city. Wow. Um, did we have any other documents that we wanted to talk about? Well, the Sanborn map that we originally used to set up this route, those are available online as well. 
And we just took it and looked at what the newspaper article said. And, and that's the same thing you'll do for any, any research task. You not only take each new document, but each new document gives you more information. And you take that inter- information and compare it with the information that you already have from other sources and come up with a clearer picture. And that's what we felt like would happen when we put all of the route into a vor- more visual way with the maps. The newspaper article told us that John King, after the attack, was taken to a barber shop. So we hunted on map um, in the general area where he was, where there was a barber shop. It was wonderful because we were able to create the entire route that he took, just following what the newspaper article said in terms of where he went. And Sanborn maps are great because they were created as fire insurance maps. And so what they do is they, they will document the building, whether it's a one or two story structure, and they'll usually give you some detail if it's a grocer or a barber. And so by looking at the Sandporn map, we were able to identify two barber shops in the close proximity of where the event occurred. And then checking newspaper ads, because the article also mentions the name of the barber, and we could check newspaper ads and again, place that barber in that same block in that same area. So we feel like it's a, a pretty good match of of where King was taken to. Um, after that, then we started thinking about other types of information that we could get from documents. And we knew that the burial plot in which John King is buried had been paid for by a local church. So we figured we might could find information related to John King's burial. And that's exactly what happened when Chris found um, the information in the church records that we have at the archives. Right. And church records um, can be used if the church has agreed to let you see them. And and we do have a fair collection of church records and that are available for public research. You can also contact the church and ask for permission to use their records. And usually they grant that and they often grant you that in a copy. And we'll just put that on file that you had access to it or granted. So that's a semi-restricted record because it's not a public record. Uh, We're holding that for churches themselves. It was the burial records of the church. So each church will be unique in what kind of records they have. You might find vestry minutes. You might find burial records. You might find birth, death, marriage records. It just depends on how old the church and what was there. And in this case, we were able to find an entry for John King and his burial. The other place we thought about looking was we figured that something, an incident like this would probably have been in the county commissioner's meetings or some sort of town meeting minutes. We didn't really find that. What we figured would happen when they would make an announcement during the meeting that this had happened. Instead, we found something sort of different from that. A few days before arrival in Charlotte, the Charles Robinson Circus appealed to the town commission and asked for a tax break. (laughs) You know, hey, we're bringing the circus to town. Please don't make us pay the fees. And I think they even said a couple of towns nearby had waived the fees, you know, so they were really trying to play that up. Unfortunately, it didn't work. (laughs) And the town commission made them pay the entire fees. And so, although it's not a a record of the death, it, it nonetheless mentioned the church. So, a nice associated record, and it got us into a, another great record series, Municipal Records. So it's always nice to, to f- have new discoveries and uh, new record series. 
And then I mentioned one Associated newspaper article a few days after the event. The article was all about what had recently happened in the circus. So on the same day that John King died, the circus owner died. And nonetheless, with all of that, with the the animal handler did, with the owner of the circus did, the show went on. And so the article was about the dedication of the, the circus members and the performers who nonetheless, in the midst of all this tragedy, burying a fellow member, still held the show. Wow, the show must go on. The show must go on. And it did, yeah. Wow. Well, that's certainly... Uh story of mayhem. Right. And, and you know, not just for the people, but for the elephants as well. They were very much at risk that whole time. Um, so two sides of that coin. I can't imagine being a 10-year-old having witnessed an elephant running that. down the streets. But something that would probably stick with you for life. Quite yeah. a scene. Well, did you all have anything else to add? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Well, thanks for helping us to uh, connect the docs. Ellen, what else do we have? All right, so now we're going to head back to the late 18th century, and we're going to talk about a story that's particularly timely for this time of year. We're going to talk turkey, and we're specifically going to talk about the turkey who was ultimately responsible for the death of Samuel Spencer. So a little bit about Spencer. He was born in 1734 in Connecticut. He was a member of the Colonial Assembly. And then in 1777, he was elected as one of the first justices of the Superior Court of North Carolina. And he served in that capacity from 1778 until his death in 1793. So his death was a little unusual. What happened was that he was attacked by a turkey at his home, which was located on Smith's Creek at the point where Smith's Creek flows into the PD River. And after this attack, he developed a bacterial infection that eventually took his life on March 20th, 1793. So, Debbie, let's talk a little bit more about this story. Um, Would you say that Spencer's death was untimely? Sure. He was 59 at the time that he died, and so it it was untimely, although he was in poor health at that time and was actually resting between terms of court because of his health. Um, He lived, as you said, on Smith's Creek, and that's in Anson County. And he was a man of some property, and he was sitting on his front porch at the time that the incident occurred. And according to what the newspaper tells us, he was wearing a red hat and he was nodding um, as he was sleeping on the porch. Then let me just read the newspaper article because that is the only document that we have that relates to this particular incident. It comes from the Fayetteville Gazette in April of 1793. Died at his seat in Anson County on the 20th ultimate, the Honorable Samuel Spencer, and one of the judges of the Superior Court of this state. His honor's health had been declining for about two years, but he performed the last circuit three months since, and we understand intended to have left home in a few days for this town where the Superior Court is now sitting, had it not been for the following unfortunate accident, which it is thought hastened his death. He was sitting in his piazza with a red cap on his head when a large cock turkey passing. The judge, being sleepy, began to nod. When the turkey, mistaking the nodding and the red cap for a challenge, made so violent and unexpected an attack on his honor that he threw him out of his chair on the floor and before he could get any assistance, so beat and bruised him that he died within a few days after. 
So that's the incident in quite a small number of words. But um, what it does tell us is that this turkey was really incensed because he came at um, Spencer fairly, uh, I would say probably at a fair clip because he actually knocked him out of his chair um, and then um, was attacking him, my guess would be with his claws as well as his beak. Spencer, of course, was sleeping, so he's trying to get himself together and probably trying to protect himself with his arms and hands to or protect his face, probably. But in spite of trying to protect himself, the scratches that he got from the turkey were laced with bacteria, and that's ultimately what killed him was the infection caused by that. What a what a rude awakening! It must have been, it must yeah, have I been. Mean, you're you're on your piazza. You're taking a little nap there in the early spring weather, and then everything's feeling great, and then boom, out of nowhere. This ball I imagine of- it was fairly disconcerting for the turkey <laughs> as well because he thought he was going to be fighting another Tom, probably. Turkey won. And, I mean, how could yeah. it be bad for him? <laughs> and yeah. so he came at it and realized, well, you know, this this is not even putting up a fight. Yeah, we don't really know if he fought back. I mean, right. we, we, really we do don't. know that he was sleeping, so he probably wasn't really with it. No. Yeah. But. My guess is all he had time to do was really throw his hands up and try to protect himself. Yeah. Um, and, Hence a defensive you know, wounds, And yeah. either the turkey just left when he realized that it wasn't another Tom that he was fighting, or he was able to bat him away at any we rate. We hope the turkey got away. The story doesn't tell us. The story know. doesn't really tell us whether the turkey, turkey got, got away. away or if he or, was somebody's supper that night. To bring us back to today and to wrap up our show a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about turkey habits and turkey safety. And here to give us some turkey info are the hosts of the podcast, Ask a Ranger, Crystal Lloyd and Jess Phillips. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Great. Um, So I did share the story of Samuel Spencer with you, a poor unfortunate man who got attacked by a turkey. So first, I wanted to ask you guys um, if you could speculate a little bit about um, that turkey attack and do we think... So when you when I first glazed over, I was like, what is a turkey doing in a courtroom? Because it said judge first. And I was like... And then, of course, I read over it and I saw that he was out on his gazebo and... When the turkeys are in mating season, so they're out searching, looking, calling for their ladies, and the ladies are kind of, you know, chirping back. They not only are amorous, but they're also aggressive because they have to know that if they, you know, if they come into where the females are, there's probably going to be other Toms. So they're already pumped. I'm not quite sure. I mean, was the guy's name Tom again or was it, you know, a joke? Ha <laughs> ha. Or Jake, uh, which is a young uh, male turkey. It's not unheard of for a male turkey, you know, especially I'm sure there's hunters out there that have called in a turkey. And if the turkey doesn't, you know, he's he's already pumped up and aggressive. I'm sure there's a hunter out there that's been and I'm sure there's some sort of fail video of a turkey attacking a hunter. But yeah, I mean, their testosterone's up. They're, you know, they're ready to mate and they're ready to fight. So whatever they run into along the way might be, uh, you know, might be the recipient of their aggression. I know that when I worked at Car Lake, we have these um, entrance booths and at the bottom of it is glass, but at the back of it is black. So it's really reflective. And I've seen, I mean, I've sat there and watched them I heard like I was actually in the booth one day and I heard this gobbling and this 
tapping on the window. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And I come out of the booth and I'll be darned. Here's some, you know, Toms and Jakes just getting upset at their own reflection. So, yes, they they tend to be very aggressive during that time of year. And what time of year is that? That would be in the spring. Okay. So that's right around when he was attacked. He was attacked at the end of March. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that would have been right around when they were all riled up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what can you tell people about like maybe like safe turkey habits or ways to deal with a turkey that might look a little aggressive? I think with any thing in nature, any sort of animal or plant that you're unsure of, you know, don't approach it. Turkeys are actually really smart. I know like maybe them attacking their own reflection makes them sound like not as uh, intelligent, but they really are. um, They can um, plan ahead. They can recognize patterns. They recognize uh, other turkeys just by like the sound that they make. And they can actually like visualize their whole like territory, their what they consider their home, like they know what's in it and where it is. If you see a, a tom out in the wild during the springtime that's maybe, you know, fluffing up at you and like kind of coming towards you, just back up and give him his space. Um, let him know. You want to let him know that you're not a threat. You're not trying to steal his ladies. Um, you're just on the trail trying to get to the next place. Uh, what's the turkey population like in North Carolina? I think it depends on the uh, region. I know up in Car Lake, there's a healthy population. I couldn't give you numbers on it, um, but there's we still have hunting seasons for them. So there's a plentiful enough population that uh, there's you know allowable hunting limits. So I've seen them actually even in Umstead State Park. I haven't seen any toms, but I did see a hen who actually happened to be looking at her reflection in a truck. So, I mean, I agree with Crystal. They're smart, but... Maybe, you know, their reflection is something. Once Don't we look at our reflections? Though? I do. I pass them here and I'm like, hey, girl. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so in our story, um, Samuel Spencer was napping and his he was apparently kind of nodding his head up and down as he was napping. And he was apparently reading, wearing a red cap. So we were wondering if that, you know, might have been seen as a threat. Well, they can't see color. Yeah, I was like, the red's probably Maybe if he was wearing a brown hat or something that blended in, maybe the turkey wouldn't have noticed him. But I feel like a red's definitely going to draw attention. And some of the colors that are in uh, Tom's and Jake's uh, facial features and waddle. I was saying also turkeys can like fly up to 55 miles an hour. So I don't know how fast he was coming at the judge, but (laughs) that's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it might have been pretty quick. Yeah, apparently kind of knocked him over um, and yeah, didn't didn't end well for the judge. Maybe the snore, too, because they have 20 up to 28 calls turkey. So maybe that mimicked. Somebody didn't like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Might have been Jake down the way that he didn't like. Yeah. So we hadn't thought about a snore mm-hmm. potential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Any other turkey facts that folks should know? Um, you know, I actually perhaps uh, have some chickens at my house and I'm always having watched turkeys in the wild and my own chickens. I, you know, I, I notice a lot of similarities and you see them, you know, scratching and moving around. And this is the same thing that turkeys do. They're they're looking for fruits, nuts, grasses. Um, and so they even eat, you know, insects and beetles, which is what you don't normally, at least I didn't normally think of as potential food for um, turkeys. Um, and they also, like she said, they can fly 50 miles an hour, but that also means that can gain some height. So they actually roost because you can imagine, you know, 11, 24 pound is a tasty delicious. meal is delicious for something come along at night like a coyote or fox, which is some of their natural predators. Um, so they need to to get up height. 
Um, and so they'll roost tall uh, up into tall hardwoods uh, during nice weather and then down in like the hemlocks, which if you can imagine a hemlock tree, it's, you know, you kind of think of a bushy kind of Christmas tree, that real branchy, and that'll protect him from adverse weather. Lots to know about turkeys. Um, and do you want to tell folks about your podcast and how people can find it and, and what they might find on it? Sure. Uh, so wherever you listen to your podcast, just search for Ask a Ranger and that'll pull our podcast up. And we just started our third season and we talk to not just park rangers, but park staff from all over the state of North Carolina, outside the state of North Carolina, and even across the whole world at this point. It's just a way to reach out to those people who may not have, may have limitations, whatever they are, into getting into the outdoors. And it's out there reaching to them saying, you know, the outdoors is available to you. You don't just have to come to us. You can come to a county park. You can come um, to your, you know, local neighborhood park. For me as a kid, it was my backyard. So it's everywhere. And we just want to interview people and engage people in a ways that they know that it's not just park rangers and state parks, but, um, you know, outdoors and outdoor experiences can start anywhere. Great. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So we just have these newspaper articles, the one which Debbie read for us and a couple others um, mention um, Samuel Spencer's death. Um, we don't really have any other original documentation about his death, but we do in our collection have a small private collection uh, from Spencer, which contains letters from him to his brother, Captain Calvin Spencer. So that's just kind of a neat little connection that we have to his actual life. Um, if anyone's interested, that's available in our collection if anybody wants to know a little bit more about Spencer. And again, no coroner's inquest on the body. Correct. So missing that loving coroner's inquest as we found in other stories that we've talked about. That's, that's exactly I was thinking about that with the old chief as well, is that we don't really have a coroner's inquest on John King, which would have been interesting. So this, you know, we've got three stories with no coroner's inquest. And how normal is that? My guess is it's fairly normal because it, uh, we don't have very many of them for the early period. So um, my guess is that that was just not a document that was saved. I feel fairly certain that they were created, the documents were created, but they probably weren't something that was saved um, by the court. They probably felt that they had a tenuous need to save them. So everyone that we have, we're really blessed to have it for this early period. And they're often full of very interesting details and lots of good stuff about uh, what happened to the victim. This is one of my favorite murder stories, if it were, or death stories. But one of my favorite um, coroner's inquests is the one that reports a tree limb had fallen on someone and killed them. And they reported the cause of death was an act of God. So we can prove the existence of God in our records at the North Carolina State Archives because he was responsible for someone's death. Yep. It seems Just like a, a, f a fun tidbit off the side there. And that's what's really interesting. It seems like the research is, is really fun. It leaves a, a lot of questions maybe at the end, but you can kind of piece together the story from what you do find. So I think that's probably the gratifying part is what you find. It is. It's, it's yeah. the most fun part of being an archivist is being able to do the research. And just every little tidbit you find is just very, very exciting. We just geek out all over the place when, we've, when we find a new document related to anything. 
that's all for this week. Special thanks to our guests, Jessica Phillips and Crystal Lloyd from Aska Park Ranger. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina. Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. Our editor is Tom Normanly. For a look at the documents we discussed in today's stories, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs podcast. 